such great time of worship. Thanks, guys, for leading us. Uh, really, really sweet time. Well, last week we began our study looking at the life of Moses, and I tried to give us kind of a big picture view of that life. And we really kind of broke it down into three 40-year segments of time. Last week we looked at that first 40, where we see how Moses was raised in the house of royalty. This morning, we're going to look at that second 40, where we see how Moses was shaped in the wilderness. And then we'll spend the rest of the fall looking at the last 40, where we see the evidences of God leading the the life of Moses. Now, last week, I gave you a little homework. If you remember, I told you to consider the importance of uh, Moses highlighting the fact that he was from the tribe of Levi. Remember that? Somebody came up and told me their answer after church, but hopefully if you've had a thought, had time to think about that, you'll remember that the Levites were who? The priests and those who assisted them. So in a sense, they were the worship leaders for the people of Israel. They were the ones who stood before God on behalf of the people. So before that office was created within God's economy, God pre-qualified Moses being from the tribe of Levi, to serve in a role that he would later give to him. But he also knew that in that role, there were things that Moses still had to learn. Thankfully, in his early years, by God's providence, the life of Moses was miraculously protected. Despite the fact that there was an edict to kill all male Hebrew boys born during that time, He was saved by his mother who put him in a basket, floated him on the Nile, knowing that Miriam, the the sister of Moses, was was the servant to the Pharaoh's daughter. So in seeing that, she, along with the Pharaoh's daughter, rescued that basket, seeing the baby. And Miriam is the one who said to Pharaoh's daughter, would you like for me to find someone who could be a nursemaid? Pharaoh's daughter said, sure, and guess who she chose? The mother of Moses. So, miraculously, through God's provision, Moses was raised by his mother in those early years of his life. And it's important for us to know and understand that that's where his faith was established. That's where he learned of his Hebrew heritage, where he understood who the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was was it's where his faith was established but then we know from about probably five years old on he was raised within the house of royalty having been adopted by pharaoh's daughter so he was trained in all the finest of the egyptian schools he was actually being groomed to be a leader within the egyptian culture being a son of royalty early on his gifts were apparent Last week, we looked at Acts chapter 7, verse 22, that said that Moses was a man of power in both word and deed. And so what we know from an early age that he was identified as a very gifted man. His strength was so evident that even Moses himself felt like he would do great things for God one day. But it was very important for him to learn. That great zeal without discernment is a very dangerous thing. 
great zeal with little discernment is a very dangerous thing. Even if you're trying to do great things for God, if it's not God's will, it won't be God's way. And that's a very dangerous thing. Remember, God's not looking for greatly gifted people. (laughs) He's looking for people with great faith. People who wait on Him. (laughs) Who follow His lead. And refuse to go out ahead of Him. That's the man that Moses must learn to be. And so before we look at that together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, in so many ways, as we continue looking at the life of Moses, I'm convinced that there will be things in our lives that we see in his. Things that he did that remind us of us. And just as he was in deep need of an understanding of his dependence upon you, we share in that same need. So, Father, as we begin our time in in looking at the life of Moses, would you help us Examine our own life as well. Would your spirit pull back the curtain and reveal things otherwise hidden so that we too can be shaped and molded into the man or woman that you intend us to be. And we're going to trust that your word is a light that will guide the way. And so we come to you with that humble heart and desire in mind. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So if you want to, you can turn to Exodus chapter 2. I'll tell you on the front end that I'm excited about what we're going to do this morning because we're going to have a neat privilege to see probably one of the best examples of how Scripture interprets Scripture. We're going to be able to see how the New Testament is going to give us some spiritual insights into what we read in Exodus that we could not have come up on our own. No matter what kind of biblical scholar you might be, You're not going to learn these things apart from having been revealed by the Spirit of God in His Word. Scripture will interpret Scripture. And it will make some things known to us that uh, we would have otherwise missed. And they're really, really important. So this will be fun. Exodus chapter 2, verse 11. Read those first two verses with me. It says, Now it came about in those days when Moses had grown up, that he went out to his brethren and looked on their hard labors. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that, and when he saw there was no one around, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Well, to begin with, by reading these first two verses, we don't have a real clear sense of the timing, the chronology of things that are going on. We simply read that in those days, Moses had grown up. Well, grown up to be what? A a teenager? A young man? We're not real sure. So keep your finger in Exodus. And if you would, go over to Acts chapter 7. And I want to encourage you to keep your finger in Acts and Exodus because we're going to go back and forth here for a little bit. But let's start with Acts chapter 7, verse 23. Acts chapter 7, verse 23. In that verse, we read this. But when Moses, but when he, Moses, was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. So here we learn exactly how old he is. He's almost 40. 
And because of what we've already talked about, we know that he's about to enter into this second season of his life when he'll be shaped by the wilderness, right? The question we have, though, is, well, how does he get there? Because right now he's living in the palace in Egypt. Well, the Bible's going to answer that question. But before we look at that together, I want to make sure you noticed a really important detail that is repeated in both Acts and in Exodus. So if you will, just listen as I read Acts chapter 7, verse 23 again, and see if you can't pick up on what's being repeated. But when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. Okay, now just listen to Exodus chapter 2, verse 11. Now it came about in those days when Moses had grown up that he went out to his brethren and looked on their hard labors, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. You hear it? Three times in those two verses, the author wants to make sure we understand that Moses looked upon the people of Israel as his brethren. Even though he had grown up in the house of royalty, he aligned himself and his heart was deeply connected with his blood relatives, the Hebrew people, his brethren. So much so that in Exodus chapter 11, I mean chapter, verse 11 of Exodus chapter 2, it says that he looked upon his brethren. That word looked upon in the Hebrew language literally means to look with compassion. What the author's trying to tell us is that Moses wasn't just kind of keeping his distance and observing what was going on. He was looking with compassion to the point that when he saw injustice, he was compelled to enter in, to do something about it. So he intervenes. Look at how Acts describes that event. Acts chapter 7, verse 24, it says... And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. It seems pretty noble, doesn't it? He's taking up for the oppressed. This is right. This is good. Or not. Maybe Moses is overstepping his bounds. And there's clues along the way that indicate that. If you remember, in Exodus chapter 2, verse 12, it said he looked what? This way and that. What's he doing? Making sure no one else is around. He looked this way and that. But you know what he didn't do? He did not look to the Lord. He took matters into his own hands. And the passage in Acts tells us clearly, Moses took vengeance. Is that his right? Does he have that authority? You don't need to turn there. Let me just read to you Romans chapter 12, verse 19. Paul is going to speak to this issue and he's going to look back to the Old Testament, which Moses would have known. And he says this, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Moses took vengeance. And when he did, he usurped the authority of God. He became a self-appointed Savior. 
Now, before you feel like that might be too harsh, let's see how Acts validates that point. Turn to verse 25. This is speaking of Moses, and he says, And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him. But they did not understand. Moses made a wrong assumption. Moses assumed that God had given him power to deliver his people, and so this must be the time. So he takes matters into his own hands. But the moment he did that, he stepped out of God's will. It's not God's will. And therefore, it won't be God's way. Because God never intended for Moses to murder an Egyptian. And that's exactly what he did. He murdered an Egyptian. You see, he wrongly assumed that everyone would follow him. Why? Because remember, he's a powerful man in both word and deed. He was greatly gifted. Surely everybody's going to see that I'm the one that God has identified to deliver his people. Now let's turn back to Exodus chapter 2 and see what happens next. Verse 13 And he went out the next day, and behold, two Hebrews, his brethren, were fighting with each other. And he said to the offender, why are you striking your companion? But he said, who made you a prince or a judge over us? Are you intending to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and said, surely the matter has become known. Case. You see what's happened here. He, he's defended the oppressed. The next day he comes out, and this time it's two of his brethren, two Hebrews, having an argument. Let's go back to Acts chapter 7 again and see how it gives us a few more details to this event. Look at verse 26. And the following day he appeared to them, and they were fighting together, and he tried to reconcile them in peace, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you injure one another? But the one who was injuring his neighbor pushed him away, saying, Who made you ruler and judge over us? You do not mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday, do you? And at this remark, Moses fled. We see in both the Exodus account and here again in Acts that the author wants us to understand who is rebuking Moses. Who's the one rebuking Moses? It's the one, as we read in Acts, who is injuring his neighbor. It's the guilty party. Do you understand that the guilty party is looking at Moses and saying, you have no moral authority to judge me. At least my hands aren't covered in blood. You're just as guilty as I am. And he was exactly right. And at that moment... Moses flees for his life because he knows he just signed a death wish the moment he took the life of an Egyptian to rescue a Hebrew slave. That was the deepest offense to Egyptian pride. And whether he was the grandson of the Pharaoh or not, he was a dead man. And so he flees for his life. Now let's look at where he is in verse 15 of Exodus chapter 2 again. 
Exodus chapter 2, verse 15. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now, that's only one verse, but there's a whole lot that's packed inside this one. Probably most important is the fact that Moses is alone. And just imagine the contrast to where he now sits compared to where he had come from. Instead of being in the lap of luxury, living in the palace where he has literally everything his heart desires, now he's sitting in the desert by a well because that water is his only hope for survival. It's all he's got. What a dramatic contrast between the two worlds in which he now lives. He's in a hot desert. He's sitting by a well. And he's a broken man. He's humbled by his circumstances. The wilderness has a way of doing that. You feel very small, don't you, students? Right, Maggie? Very small. We all do. The wilderness has a way of humbling you. Now look at verse 16. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Then the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. Now, at first glance, you read this and you go, oh no, here we go again. Moses standing up for the oppressed. Last time, that did not turn out so well, right? But if you look closely, it's a very different circumstance. We see here in this part of the story that seven women, seven daughters of this father who lives in Midian, came out to, gather, uh, to draw water to uh, water their father's flock. And what we need to understand about this is that well, apparently the same one that Moses was sitting by, those women came and had to fill up a bucket of water, one at a time, and then walk it over and fill up a trough, enough to fill a, a feed or, or water a large flock of sheep. So this was no small task. There's not a water hose, okay? They're not turning on a spigot and putting water in the trough. One bucket at a time, they fill it up, they carry it over, they fill the trough. And so Moses apparently is watching this, as are the shepherds. Now, I find this significant, because if I were writing this story, I might have said, and some shepherds came up. But that's not what it says. What does it say? The shepherds. These are some specific men that must have been known because of a reputation that precedes them. In my mind, these shepherds are wearing black hats. These are bad guys. The shepherds have shown up. And at first you think, well, they're being polite. They're letting the women draw water so they can wait their turn. What nice men. But that's not what they were doing, is it? Instead, they were waiting for the women to finish their job just so they could push them out of the way and feed their own sheep with the water the women had drawn. <laughs> and we learn in this situation that Moses defended them. We don't really have any details to this, so in my mind, what I picture is that he simply stood up as if to say, they're with me. He didn't fly into a rage like he did back in Egypt and start trying to kill people one right after the other. He simply stood up as if to say, 
there with me. A much more humble and restrained response, wouldn't you say? I think that's because the wilderness has a way of humbling us. He's being shaped by God within that environment. Look at verse 18. So when they, the daughters, came to rule their father, he said, why have you come back so soon? So they said, an Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds. And what is more, he even drew the water for us and watered the flock. And he said to his daughters, well, where is he then? Why is it that you have left the man behind? Invite him to have something to eat. The father's name is Raul. We'll know him later in this account as Jethro. It's the same one. His name means friend of God. He wonders why they got back so soon. It actually took, uh, didn't take as long. And I suspect maybe it's because they routinely run into the shepherds who create such havoc for their lives. And he's wondered, why are you back so soon? So they explain, and notice they identify Moses as an Egyptian. Now Moses is a Hebrew. He was born out of a Hebrew family, so probably everything about him looks Hebrew except for what he's wearing. Very likely, it's the very same thing he was wearing the day he left Egypt, which may be why the shepherds didn't give him any more trouble than they did, because what he's wearing dictates some kind of importance. He's an Egyptian. And they explain not only how Moses defended them, but how he went as far in that humility to help them draw water. Now, sometimes the Bible is so honest, it's just funny. You've got to laugh at it. You're supposed to laugh, okay? Because it's so true to life. Well, get the picture of what's happened here. This man has seven daughters, Bless his ever-loving heart, okay? Seven daughters. You understand this, right? Well, they come home and they say, Dad, you'll never guess what happened. This man, he's an Egyptian. He defended us. He was courageous. He was brave. Look at what he did. And what does the dad say? Why isn't he here? It's as if he's saying, wait a second. I have seven daughters. Do you think men like that grow on trees? Ask the man to dinner. That's what this is saying. So they do. They ask him to dinner. Look at verse 21. And Moses was willing to dwell with the man. And he gave him his daughter, Zipporah, to Moses. Then she gave birth to a son, and he named him Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Isn't it ironic how Moses has been accepted by a stranger after having been rejected by his own people? And Moses really didn't have a choice when he was offered the ability to stay with his family because there was no possible way he was going to survive on his own. The Midianites were a nomadic people. They ironically lived in the Sinai Peninsula, which is where Moses will one day lead the people out of bondage from Egypt into the Promised Land. So he's becoming familiar with the land that he will one day lead his people through unknowingly, but now he's just learning to lead his own home. He's learning how to be a father, how to be a husband, how to be a shepherd and and tend sheep. It's a simple life, but it was the training ground that God would use to shape his life because Moses will learn some things through this experience that would have never been taught to him in even the finest of the Egyptian schools. 
The wilderness is a place of humility. And based on the name that Moses gives his son, we see that he is a humble man. He's a broken man. In his mind, he probably assumes he's been disqualified. But in God's mind, it's just the opposite. Humility is what will qualify him to lead. He's faithfully stewarding the small things as God shapes his life and prepares him to do great things. Now, at this point, you can kind of imagine the, the curtain closing on this scene in the desert, and now God is going to take center stage. Look at what happens in verse 23. Now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died. And the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage. And they cried out. And their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God heard their groaning. And God remembered His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them. I think these are some of the most beautiful verses in all of Scripture. And then we're going to focus on these last two, because in these last two, we see four very important attributes of God in the life of Moses and in our life as well. They are God hears, God remembers, God sees, and God knows. God hears. Last week we talked about how comfortable the Israelites had probably become in the land of Egypt. They had no worries. Joseph had faithfully provided for them. They grew to become a great nation, a multitude of people. And because they were shepherds and despised by the Egyptians, they were left to themselves. And they were doing quite well, even though the land of Egypt was not the land that God had promised them. And I suspect within that comfort, they became spiritually lazy. And chances are, they did not spend a lot of time on their knees because they had everything they needed. But that all changed when suffering entered their life. When they had crisis, having been in bondage. And what did they do? They cried out to God. They had a need to be rescued. But the fact of the matter is, that need was always there. They just didn't realize it in the midst of comfort. But when they lifted their voices, we hear that God heard their prayers. And God heard because God remembers. He remembers His promises. The promises of, of, of a land, of, of a Savior, of, of a blessing. The promise that he made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, the people of Israel, the Jews, his brethren. God remembered. Very likely in their comfort, they forgot because they weren't in a hurry to get out of the land of Egypt to the land that God had promised. But even though they forgot, God remembered. He hears, he remembers, and he sees. This is the same word used back in verse 11 when Moses looked upon his brethren. Remember? He looked with compassion. Not a distant observation, but a willingness 
to enter in. It's the very same word. He was willing to enter in. Why? Because God knows. He knows things about ourselves that we don't even know about ourselves. God knows. He knows that we need a Savior even when we don't understand the capacity to which that's true. But He's patient. Not wanting any to perish, but all to come to a place of repentance. And His timing is perfect. He moves at just the right moment for the most possible people to come to a place of repentance and faith. Suffering was not an accident. It was a wake-up call. God wasn't distant or aloof. He hears. He remembers. He sees. And He knows. Before we close up this morning, there's a passage that I think ties all this together in the New Testament. And I want us to look at that together. So turn to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24 says, By faith, Moses... When he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Now as we read these verses, a lot of it sounds familiar. We've worked through many of the details that, that are mentioned here as well. We know about the connection that Moses has with his brethren, the Hebrew people. We know about his willingness to, to walk out of the palace and all the luxury that that afforded him to enter into the suffering of that people. We know about his decision to reject pagan worship that would have surrounded him because of a true and guided faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And his desire ultimately to deliver the people of God. We know that's true because that's what's been, uh, what we've looked at already. Moses was a faithful man in those regards. But what about verse 26? What, what's being said there? Let me read that again. Considering the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasure of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Now, what we know is that Moses at that time would not have had a complete understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. But he did believe in God's promised redemption. That's the reward that he was looking for. So much so that he left that palace to enter into the suffering of his people. So much so that he was willing to defend those who were oppressed and to, to seek peace with those who were divided. Moses really did have good intentions, but only Jesus could be the Savior. You see, because of sin, Moses had no moral authority to bring justice. Because of sin, he had no right to bring peace. Moses was looking for a reward, and he was being commended for his faith in that promise. But in the end, 
Moses tried to do for God what only God could do for him. In the end, Moses tried to do for God what only God could do for him. Psalm 46.10 says, Cease striving and know that I am God. See, in the wilderness is where Moses would learn to wait on God, to trust in God, and to follow His lead. And the writer of Hebrews is giving us an insight. He's saying that reward that Moses was longing for was ultimately fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. (laughs) And I want you to just stop for a minute and consider the beautiful connection of this parallel. Jesus, like Moses, left the comfort of his palace in heaven to enter into the suffering of his people. But unlike Moses... Jesus has the moral authority to bring justice. Why? Because his hands were clean. He knew no sin. Jesus had the ability to bring peace in a way that Moses never could have. Why? Because the price of peace was the blood of the cross. Jesus became our peace. And apart from him, there is no peace. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And that was only possible through Jesus Christ, our one and only Savior. You see, here's the key. (laughs) That reward that Moses was looking for, that's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our great reward. He is the Savior we so desperately need, whether we realize that or not. Like Moses, we need to cease striving and put our trust in Him. Like Moses, we do. We need to forsake the passing pleasures of sin and look for a reward that's not in this world. And that reward is Jesus. Hear me clearly on this. Our world does not need any more gifted people doing great things for God. Our world needs Jesus Christ. And because of that, they need you. The only hope that this world has is Christ in you. The hope of glory. You are that compassion. You are the one who brings truth and grace and forgiveness. The only hope that exists in this world is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So be humble. Be faithful. And the small things are the great. But in any case, be willing to put your faith and trust in God and let Him lead the way. Let the light of Christ shine in your life in such a way that they will see your good works, the work of Christ, and glorify God, your Father in heaven. I think at this point in time, when we consider the amazing truths of a passage like we've looked at this morning, a lot of us hear this, and, and there's things that are stirred in our heart, 
And we want to know, okay, what do we do from here? And I could give you some things, but there's a passage in Scripture that I think is going to lay it out beautifully for us. So here's what I want you to do. You may want to write this down. It's Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. You don't need to turn there now. Just write that down. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. And here's what I'm going to do this morning. I'm going to close in prayer by reading you this passage. And I want you to listen to it as I read it slowly and consider how it gives you and I the guidance into how to take the truths of what we've learned this morning and put them into practice in the life, in our life, as God's people. So that Christ in you, that hope of glory, shines forth in a way that He is honored and glorified above all things. So if you will, bow with me as we look and pray together. And so, as those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, with psalms, singing spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, and whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God our Father. Lord, may we take to heart the truths of your word and the lessons learned from the life of Moses that I believe fervently resonate within our hearts as well. Help us to be humble, not feeling like we have great gifts to do great things for God, however noble those attempts may be. But instead, may we be humble refusing, as Moses will later tell the people of Israel, we're not going anywhere unless God moves first. Apart from Him, we can do nothing. So Lord, help us to be the people of God that You called us to be. The hope, the only hope that exists in this world is Christ in us the hope of glory. So may we be a people who live our lives in a way that shines that truth as evident to the world around us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Have a great day.